Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalms 127, 1-2, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sheep. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, before we take a look at this psalm together this morning, let me invite you again to uh, pray with me. Father, I pray that you would meet us this morning and through the preaching of your word, you would wash us in the water of the word, that you would revive us, restore us, strengthen us, encourage our hearts in the good news of Jesus Christ this morning as we gather in his name. Show us your glory, we pray, through your word proclaimed in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, these days, I don't know if you're seeing the same kinds of things in your your news feed that I see, but there's all sorts of talk about uh, the need to strike a work-life balance balance. Do you, do you see that kind of talk around? It's everywhere. This, there's seven tips to having a proper work-life balance, and this expert is telling us one thing, and another expert is telling us another thing. It's everywhere you look. It's work-life balance. And the only thing uh, I notice about that is that the, the wording is kind of strange, because it's as if work and life are two completely separate things. And I just don't kind of view it that way. Um, work and life are not two completely separate things. Uh, some people might look at it that way, and, 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 and those people might say something like, uh, I work in order to live. Those things are completely separate, and, and I work uh, just so I can live. And then there are these other kinds of people, these uh, very interesting people, um, who, for whom work is, is everything. Work defines them. Work gives them their sense of significance. And for people like that, they might tell you, well, I live in order to work. There's no work-life balance there. They're just borged into one thing. And so the first person might think that, you know, who lives in order to work, they might think that work is a necessary evil. It's something to be avoided as much as possible. And for the second kind of person, uh, their, their work is their life. They're, they're one thing. They're, they're merged together. They, they live through their work or they live for their work. And let me just say this. Both of those are really bad. Both of those approaches to work are wrong-headed, and ultimately, they're unhealthy. And so this morning, I think uh, what Solomon shows us here in Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, is a different way, uh, a better way of thinking about our work. Let me read these verses to you again that Andrea just read. And then we will jump in and look at them. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Here, in Psalm 127, Solomon is warning us about a way of working that ignores the Lord. A way of going about our work that... um, that denies the role that the Lord plays in our work, a way that disregards our need for the Lord to work through our work. He wants us to avoid that mistake. And the examples he gives us here are building a house or watching over a city, but you can fill in whatever example you'd like. These are representative examples. The idea is anything that we do, whether it's raising kids or going to school and being a student or serving coffee at Starbucks or whatever we do. Solomon is saying that all of our efforts will ultimately be wasted if we imagine that we can achieve anything worthwhile apart from the Lord. That's his warning to us here. See, the problem is, and this is, this is a problem that we all face, because since the rebellion of our first parents, since the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us have been tempted to believe the lie that we can live our lives independently of God. This is the lie we're all tempted to believe, as if somehow we exist independently and autonomously away from God. And that is a fallacy that inevitably always leads to futility in our lives. There's a famous uh, New Testament scholar by the name of Charles Cranfield, and he once said, to imagine that we are the center of all things existing for ourselves is to be out of touch with reality and caught in a world of illusion. And ultimately, I I would say that this is a very pervasive, an omnipresent illusion in our contemporary secular culture. That somehow we can go about our lives Monday to Saturday, and maybe we we feel our need for the Lord on Sunday and, and for those few minutes in the morning when we do our devotions. But for the most part, many of us are tempted to believe the lie that we can live our lives, that we can get it done without the Lord's help. We don't need Him. Or if we do, it's peripheral. It's minor. He plays a small role. And that's, that's the illusion. That's the error. That's the futility that Solomon wants to guard us against this morning. Psalm 127 says that whenever we labor under this illusion and we toil anxiously and waste all of our efforts, even whatever we produce, and we may, we may get a lot done, but even whatever we produce, it will ultimately just slip through our fingers like sand. It'll be like trying to grasp a fog. It will elude us. It will escape us. It won't last. It won't endure And Solomon wants to save us from this. Jesus knew 
about this futility. Jesus knew about the weariness and the futility of working in this way, of working under this illusion of autonomy from God. Listen to what he says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. I I pray that these words would wash over you with great comfort this morning. Listen to what he says, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We were never created to live independently of the Lord. The 5th century church father, Augustine, once said, and you've heard me quote this many times. It's one that I hope you memorize and and remind yourself of. Augustine said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, the rest... And that's what this message is about this morning. Our our message is about the rest that the Lord gives us. The rest that the, the Lord calls us into. The Lord gives us. And this is the key to avoiding that anxious toil and that futile labor that Solomon warns us about in Psalm 127. Let me illustrate this for you. Back in 1981, uh, one of my favorite films was, came out. It's Chariots of Fire. And it's, it's the true story about two men that ran and competed in the 1924 Paris Olympics. One of them was a, a Christian named Eric Liddell. The other was a non-Christian by the name of Harold Abrahams. Now, at one point in the film, Eric Liddell's sister is concerned that Eric is too focused on his training for the Olympics. She's concerned that he is compromising his commitment to Christ because all that he's doing, it seems, is just training and running and training and preparing for the Olympics. And she comes to him and shares her concern with him. And he says one of the great lines in the movie, in order to sort of make a case, in order to give a rationale for why he runs, he says to her, the Lord made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Later on in the film, Liddell demonstrates his commitment to Christ when he refuses to run in a race that is scheduled at the Olympics for Sunday. Because Eric Liddell, like many Presbyterians, believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, a day set apart solely unto the Lord. And he wouldn't run on the Sabbath. And as a result of not running, he lost an opportunity to win a gold medal in a race that everybody favored him to win. And he did this because 
pleasing the Lord through his faithfulness was much more important to him than feeling the pleasure of the Lord while he ran. Now, in contrast to Eric Liddell, Harold Abrahams was absolutely determined to run and to win gold. At one point, just before the 100 meters event that he's going to run in, at one point, Harold Abrahams is confiding in his teammate. He's anxious, he's restless, and he's confiding in his teammate. And he says to him, I have 10 seconds in order to justify my existence. See, ultimately, Abrahams runs because he needs to run. He runs in order to prove his worth. He runs in order to earn a sense of his own significance. See, even when he's resting before the race, he's anxious. And later, after running in the race and winning the gold medal, he's unable to enjoy the victory. His victory doesn't give him what he hoped it would. It doesn't deliver what it it seemed to promise him. It's an empty victory. It's a vain victory. Now, Eric Liddell ends up running in another race, not on Sunday, and he also wins gold. But because he doesn't run in order to justify his existence... He experiences the restful pleasure of God even as he exerts himself in running. It's very evident if you watch the film that he is enjoying God as he runs. Abraham's, on the other hand, was a restless man even when he was resting. Now, Why is this? Why is there such a dramatic difference between these two men and the way that they ran? They're both extremely fast runners. They both won gold medals in the Olympics. But the difference between these two men is profound. What is it? Well, I think the answer lies in understanding, as Tim Keller puts it, quote, There is a work underneath our work that we really need to find rest from. It's the work of self-justification. See, the problem is, Harold Abrahams ran because he needed to justify his existence. Some of us work in order to justify our existence, to feel worthwhile, to feel significant, to feel important. Harold Abrahams ran and worked to gain a sense of worth, security, meaning, purpose. Eric Liddell didn't. Eric Liddell didn't run the way Harold Abrahams ran because he didn't have to. Because Eric Liddell knew and rested in his identity in Jesus Christ. 
He was resting in the work that Jesus Christ had accomplished for him through his death and his resurrection. That's why he didn't have to justify his existence. Abraham's labored and was anxious because he was trying to do the work that only the Lord can do for us. And some of us are are eating the bread of anxious toil because we're trying to do the work in our work that only the Lord can accomplish for us. Liddell enjoyed the Lord's pleasure even as he exerted himself in running because he was resting in the work that Jesus had accomplished for him. See, it's not about what we do. You could be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. It doesn't matter. Got one laugh. It doesn't matter so much what we do. It's how we do it. Do we work restlessly? Do we do our jobs restlessly and anxiously? Or or is there a pervasive rest even when we're busy? Even when we're exerting ourselves and working up a sweat and like the guys moving in all the, the kit this morning to set up for us. You never get a sense from Tanner that he's he's anxious. If you want to feel restful, just hang out with Tanner. Very restful guy. Because there's a work that, that Jesus has done for him under the work that he does. He doesn't work to justify his existence. Jesus justifies his existence. So let me ask you this morning. This is the question we need to be asking ourselves. Are we trusting the work that Jesus has done for us? Are we trusting that work under our work? Are we working from a place of restfulness or restlessness? Because how we work is a demonstration of our posture toward God. Are we trying to do the work that only the Lord can do for us? In John 15, I I love these words from Jesus. In John 15, verses 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, the language is very different, but that's exactly what Solomon is saying in Psalm 127. Apart from the Lord working in us, with us, through us, for us, apart from the Lord's work in our work, we can accomplish nothing. It's all vanity. It's all striving. It's all anxious toil. It's worthless. So what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning 
is look at six ways we can guard ourselves against that, that anxious toil, this, this vain and, and useless labor that Solomon warns us about. Six ways that we can work so that the Lord works through our work. You should all be writing, like, I just should just see notepads. First, we should work from a place of rest. That's what I've been saying. We need to work from a place of rest. Look again at what Jesus says in Matthew 11. You can't, can't read this passage too much. Come to me, he says. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's his promise to you this morning. Don't neglect the Lord. Come to him desperately every day. You get up, come to him. Know that today is going to be a a wearisome day unless you begin with the rest that he alone can give you. That work under your work that he's already done for you. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows that weight that we wake up with in the morning because there's a deadline at the end of the day and we don't know how we're going to get it done. And, and we get up early and we have a quick shower and we wolf down our breakfast and we speed through traffic to get to work because we've got to get busy and we haven't drawn near to Jesus. We haven't cast our cares upon Him. We haven't asked Him to give us the rest that we need to, to not work restlessly today. He knows our deadlines. He knows our weariness. He knows our burdens. And He invites us to come to Him and know rest. Rest for our souls. The word rest here is just a metaphor for salvation, for redemption. And this is something that not not only happens once, but something we have to appropriate day after day. We have to live in the good of the gospel. We have to live in the good of the grace of God. We have to live in the good day by day of the rest for our souls that Jesus freely, continuously gives us. We can take a day off, a week off, a month off from all forms of work. And I promise you, none of it will quiet or tame our restless hearts. See, the rest that we really need is what we talked about this morning in our confession. We need peace with God. And only Jesus can do that for us. And until our Hearts, our restless hearts, find their rest in Him and find peace with God through Jesus Christ, we will toil anxiously and we will work in vain. Hebrews 4.3 says that we who have believed enter God's rest. Verse 10 says, Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from His. Now, when did God do that? 
Well, he's referring back to the creation. You remember the, 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 the story of Genesis 1 and the creation account and the six days when God works and creates the heavens and the earth. And then it tells us on the seventh day, God set it apart, made it holy, and he rested on the seventh day. God created, God finished, and God rested. Now, in Christ, we are invited to rest, not because Christ completed the work of creation, but because he has completed the work of redemption. He set us free from our slavery to sin. He's brought us out of that Egypt of sin, and he's brought us into the promised land of his glory and his grace and his goodness and his love. See, in Christ, you're God's child, God's adopted child. And God loves to bless and encourage his children. And in Christ, we can lay our heads down, even after a a long and tiring day, we can lay our heads down on the pillow and get a good deep sleep. Because that's what Solomon says, God gives to his beloved. Is there any weaker place to be than sleeping? I mean, I don't mean to freak any of you out, but like we are more vulnerable when we're sleeping than any other time. We go unconscious for a third of our lives. Isn't that weird? Like somebody could just kill us. (laughs) Yeah, sorry to freak you out. But think about it this way. The one who watches over us never slumbers or sleeps. See, sleeping and and gaining the gift of sleep and and having a restful sleep, that is the gift of God because we're not anxious about who we belong to. Who is our Father? Who watches over us? Who will provide for tomorrow? And who watched over us all day today? It's a gift from God to sleep. Because God never sleeps. God watches over all of his children all the time for their good. So this is the place we must begin. Everything else flows out of this. We must work from a place of rest. Second, we must work for the glory of God. That has to be our direction continually. We have to work for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. See, we were created in the image of God. We are God's image bearers for a purpose. And that purpose is to reflect His goodness and His glory to the world. To reflect who He is to others. That's what it means to be a human being. And to do anything less than that is to live a subhuman existence. The problem is that when we ignore the glory of God, when we don't make our lives about reflecting who he is to the world, guess what? We end up just wanting to reflect our own glory to the world. Look at me, big puffy chest, and look at my accomplishments. He'll become... A me monster. Let me tell you about what I did here. And let me show you what I did there. And boy, am I special. 
We become me monsters. It's all about us. It's all about our name and our glory and our greatness and our achievement. Who we know, where we've been, and why it's all so much better than you. You know, it's like you, me. (laughs) And what's that remind you of? It reminds you of the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? They work so hard. Why? To make a great name for themselves. And that's, that describes so much of human work, human accomplishment. We, we really end up making monuments to our own selfish ambition. And it's all vain. It's all anxious toil. We want to ask ourselves, does our work honor and glorify God? That should be the end, the goal of all of our work, to glorify God. Third, we need to work for the good of our neighbor. There are two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. And one of the ways that we can line up our work with God's work is to direct our work for the good of our neighbor. So we work from a place of rest. We work for the glory of God. And we also work for the good and the blessing and the upbuilding of our neighbor. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to our brothers and sisters in the church. Everyone, yes but especially one another that we're, we're growing up into the fullness of Christ with. I like to say that we are created to use things, people, not love things and use people. And in that way, if we were to love people and use the things that God has given us, our gifts and, and, and all the things that we, we have, if we use them to bless others, it's a very different paradigm. It's a very different way of living than the one that we're discipled by our culture in. We're taught to, in our culture to love things and to use people to get those things. See, the good news about Jesus Christ is that it frees us from selfish, restless, me-centered working. And it moves us towards others to, to, to live sacrificially, generously in a way that blesses them and builds them up. Leaves them better than when we found them. Make that your mission in life. That's a great way to know that you're participating in the Lord's work. Make sure your work is for the blessing and building up of others. Fourthly, We need to work in the strength that the Lord supplies. This is important. 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Love the story in John 4. In John 4, Jesus goes with his disciples into Samaria. And it's after a long day of ministry. He's tired. He's had nothing to eat. And he meets this woman at the well in Samaria. And he enters into a conversation with her. And he he discloses to her that he is the Messiah that 
her and her people have been hoping in. And then the disciples come back on the scene and they're, they're pleading with him. They're urging him to eat something. He hasn't eaten all day. And they're urging him to eat something because he's going to get weak. He's not going to be able to keep going. And I love his response to his disciples. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. See, doing work for God's glory and for the good of our neighbor will always enjoy God's blessing, God's provision on our work. See, these all line up, right? They all, they all flow into one another. And if we are working from a place of rest, trusting in Jesus Christ, if we are working for the glory of God, if we are working for the good of our neighbor, God will meet us in our work. He will feed us and fuel us in our work. He will strengthen us, even when we're feeling weary and tired. This was the Apostle Paul's vivid experience in his own ministry. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles, he says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, if we want the grace of God to abound with us and for us and through us in our work, to feed us and fuel us in our work, let's work from a place of rest. Let's work for the glory of God. Let's work for the good of our neighbor. And God will meet us and work through us in it. I love the words of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was an 18th century British uh, evangelist traveled all over the UK and then all over the uh, eastern United States and tens of thousands of people came to Christ through his ministry. And George Whitfield says, I may be weary in the work, but I have never been weary of the work. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. I... I I've been in in ministry 20 years, and it surprises me sometimes that I've been, there's been lots of days where I've been very tired in ministry, but I've, I've never been tired of ministry. And I can say that with, with a clear conscience. I've never been tired of ministry. There's, there's power in ministry. Serving others with the good news of Jesus Christ that feeds me even when I'm weary and weak. Trust the Lord to strengthen you in your work. Fifth, we should work with an eye to eternity. We need to work in a way that that looks to eternity ultimately. Every one of us ultimately works to some sort of end, some sort of telos, some sort of goal. We work towards some preferred vision of the future that we want to contribute to because we want our work to mean something. We want it to last. We want it to make a difference, right? Well, we need to look to eternity for that goal. 
In Revelation 14, 13, the Apostle John writes this. He says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. See, if we work from a place of rest, we work for the glory of God, we work for the good of our neighbor, we work in the strength that the Lord supplies, this is the, the work that the Lord will recognize and reward in eternity. We don't er, work to earn our salvation, we work from our salvation, but our work matters to God. Our work matters in eternity. God will recognize and reward our works done in His way for His glory in His strength. Finally, six, we should trust the Lord for the results of our work. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Paul writes, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, why did he write that? Because he knows what all of us are tempted with sometimes. We're tempted to believe that all of our efforts are in vain. Maybe they're not counting. Maybe they they don't matter as much as I hope that they would matter. Here's the thing. Not, we cannot see hardly all of what the Lord might be doing through us. We have to re- leave the results of what we do ultimately in His hands. We have to trust Him. We have to trust Him to work in His way and in His timing. That's hard. Paul says our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 7. He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters, that's, that's work, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Only God makes it happen. Only God will use us or not use us. We need to leave the results of our work to him. Otherwise, I think we're, we're going to aim for something much less than the glory of God. Think of it this way. Imagine how people viewed Jesus. You know, many people got behind him and supported him because they thought, here's the king who's going to come into Jerusalem and bring the kingdom in its, all of its fullness with victory and triumph as he overcomes the oppressive rule of the Romans. He's going to deal with these guys. He's going to kick them out. He's going to raise an army to deal with the oppressive Romans. And what happens? He dies on a cross, which to anyone who is thinking about the kingdom come and triumph and victory and freedom from Roman rule, it must have seemed like an absolute abject failure, futility. But for those of us who have eyes to see, how does it appear to you this morning? See, because when we look to Jesus Christ dying on a cross, we see the victory of God. We see God triumphing for us over Satan and sin and death. 
we see God reconciling the world to himself. We see God at work advancing his kingdom and and, and building his church and against which the gates of hell will never prevail. That's what we see with the eyes of faith when we look to the death of Jesus on the cross, which many people thought was a complete failure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless us with the eyes of faith to see and to savor the work that Jesus has done for us, the victory that he has won for us, the freedom that he calls us into, the freedom from anxious toil and labor. I pray that his rest would be our rest this morning. And by your spirit, that rest would be applied afresh to our hearts this morning. Would you comfort us draw near to us, strengthen us, revive us, renew us, restore us. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.